a Lion Fury production. Welcome to Wolf and Cub Film Club, a film review show with a twist. What's the twist, you ask? Well, it's me and me dad. He's the wolf, and I'm the cub. There's another thing. We're both filmmakers. Wolf, Steve Thomas, makes documentaries and is a film school senior lecturer. And Cub, that's me, Danny Thomas, am also a writer and an actor. So grab a chock top, sit back and relax as we discuss two films per episode, often with a common theme between them. On this episode, we take a look at two documentaries that use interesting narrative devices. The 2021 film Misher and the Wolves and from 2012, Stories We Tell. Let's get into it. All right, guys. First up today, we've got Misha and the Wolf, which is a 2021 documentary directed by Sam Hopkinson and watched it last night. I would describe it as the tale of a, a woman's unbelievable story and as the doco gets goes on the story becomes even more unbelievable in a different way is it misher and the wolf or misher and the wolves it's misher and the wolves i always check the names now because i've blundered a few in the past well i think you blundered because you said misher and the wolf did i (laughs) i think so (laughs) but that's all right misher and the wolves Plural, yeah, with a V. An interesting title given the uh, name of our podcast. I thought that. I don't really want to start with the cliche I liked it or I didn't like it. I was intrigued by it. You, you kick it off, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the question or one of the questions with this and stories we tell, which is the second half of the discussion is how much we kind of give away, um, you know, in terms of spoilers. And I was one because, you know, there's a major spoiler. In both. In both, but probably of more significance in Misha and the Wolves. But then I noticed that if you Google Misha and the Wolves, up comes Guardian articles and reviews talking about this hoax doco. So probably most people will have had the spoiler by the time they watch the film. Um, so now I suppose I've spoiled it. <laughs> I, I was going to say, yeah, there's with both these films, there's big spoilers, so all we could do is alert you guys to that. I suppose the question is, is hoax the right word? Um, You know, is it a hoax? Because there's a kind of to and fro argument at the end of the film between various participants, some of whom are experts uh, on the Holocaust and things like this, about, you know, how do we, was it a hoax? Is Misha, you know, telling some kind of truth, although it's also a fantasy, or is it was it a scam, you know, to make money? Is there, is there some redemptive um, explanation? But I, I suppose we should tell the storyline, basically, which I'm sure you can do. 
or it's about a woman who's living in a small American town. When she was encouraged to share her remarkable story in this town, she began to speak of her time as a child surviving the Holocaust and that her parents had been deported from Belgium to Germany to Auschwitz. She was placed with a family and her recollection was that the family felt sort of burdened by her and perhaps didn't really want her. They'd taken her in. So she was determined to find her parents and she set forth on a long journey by foot from Belgium to Germany. She'd seen the maps and she thought Belgium was quite small and Germany was quite big and she thought that she could literally just walk there and find her parents. And along the way, she developed a connection with nature which involved befriending a pack of wolves. And so as soon as she started to share this story, people were gripped by it and uh, a local publisher was on to her about getting this story out there into the world. It then takes a twist and a turn and we start to doubt through other people's accounts whether this story from this woman Misha has been embellished and how much truth is in it and it begins to unravel as more detective work takes place. I guess the thing to add to that is not only was it published, but it became a multi-million global selling book with a movie um, that was eventually made and a lot of money involved. And that was the first point at which um, Jane Daniels, I think, is the publisher and Misha D. Fonseca is the woman with the story, that's where they began to fall out because Misha von Besecker felt that she wasn't receiving an adequate share of the royalties and so she actually sues the publisher. The publisher loses in court because the courts, the jury side with Misha, presumably out of sympathy with her story, and award her, you know, millions of dollars in this royalty settlement. That kind of challenges, well, it's devastating for the publisher, for Jane, and she sets out to kind of rescue her reputation and in the process uh, becomes aware of some discrepancies between the English language version of the book and the French language version of the book, where Misha uses a different name for her adopted parents, a different surname. And in in the uh, kind of investigation as to why that was the case, then it becomes increasingly apparent that Misha had not been not even being a hidden child, wasn't even Jewish and certainly didn't walk with the wolves to Germany. 
So I'm, I'm interested, and, and there's a device in the film which they use, they introduce each character who's kind of taking over the next stage of the investigation. So there's the journalist and the teacher and the Holocaust expert and, and the psychologist and all the people involved that their neighbours uh, have opinions in the town and then there's the publisher, of course. So these cards come up, you know, the publisher, the journalist, and we hear their contribution to the investigation, which eventually goes all the way to Belgium and into the archives where a very interesting elderly Belgian woman who was a hidden child um, in the Second World War actually kind of cracks the case um, in the end. Well, what did you think of the cards with the the labels on them, the neighbour? What did you think of that as a device? I thought it was okay as a device and it, in a way it helped to well, it established people's roles in the film, but it also acts as kind of like chapters of the story. And reading an interview with, um, is it Sam Hopkinson? I don't, I don't know his filmmaking history. I just know he's made a lot of films. Um, he's British and he's made a lot of docos over there on various subjects. But his kind of rationale is that he wanted this story, whether or not you, you knew the ending already, because it's, a, you know, it's in the public domain. He wanted the story to unfold as a kind of thriller where the, the audience kind of gets the clues and the information in the same order that they occurred in, in the real story. But at the same time, withholding some important information, which one doesn't get until the end of the film. I live in Germany. If, if somebody was to tell me they're a Holocaust survivor, there would immediately be very little question on my part or doubt in their story. And that's a theme in the film that the publisher says, how can I, how can I doubt a woman who's claiming she's a Holocaust survivor. And I, I would be the same. I would never doubt anybody because of the weight of that enormously dark period in history. Well, I think that's that, that's the core of the film is really, uh, and, and when, you, when you deconstruct a story and, and they retell parts of the story in the film, she talks about... As being a child, she killed a guy because he had, she'd seen him rape a girl and she thought he was going to rape her and she stabbed him and she describes this. It's in a, it, this is Misha in a television interview when the book was going gangbusters. Uh, so she's on screen telling this story to the interviewer and she's crying as she talks about stabbing this guy in the stomach and there being blood all over the place in order to survive. And there were like aspects of the story afterwards which you go, 
you know, that's beyond the pale, really. Is this what a five, six-year-old, seven-year-old girl would do? Stab stab a guy and kill him, you know? So the the film is really about the gullibility of people, you know, to believe things that have some sense of authority or believability and how far that can go because once she's written the book and they've made a film, you know, and then there's scenes in Belgium with this school teacher who gets Misha to talk to her kids in the class and they do a big project and they all draw pictures of wolves and, you know, everybody is taken in by this story which turns out to be a complete fabrication. And so the question is kind of how come we everybody got duped in this way? How come, you know, ends up millions of dollars spent on films, millions of people buying this book, all accepting this story as being the truth? So... That's what it's a film about, really. I guess from initially I was trying to figure out whether I trust her on an instinctual level or not and what she's saying. And initially I was doubting some of the story because I was like, if she's if she's with a pack of wolves, there's no way she could eat raw meat with the wolves. There's no way she could continue to trek thousands of miles. And, and I just don't think she would have survived and the, the cold, you know, the seasons, uh, for, for a seven-year-old girl to survive in those uh, circumstances. So I had my doubts, but what I was asking myself was, do I trust this woman instinctually? And I didn't initially, perhaps because she, perhaps partly because she was being uh, played uh, by an actress. But that aside, is 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 this a calculated strategic manipulation of the public and the people who were interested in this story or when they start to unpiece some of the truths around her family, we find out that her father was an informant for the Belgian government about the Germans and he was deported to Germany and considered to be a traitor by the Belgian revolutionists. And because he was considered to be a traitor, Misha, as a young girl, was tormented about this. You know, people say she had a, she was highly imaginative. My sense, who knows, was that she embellished this grand story as a survival mechanism for what was going on in her childhood and that she then went on to embellish in this story so much that she just truly believed it and it became her reality. And the reason people got behind her and is so convincing, I think, is because you actually believe what she's saying because perhaps she truly believes it as opposed to being calculated and manipulative. So she's basically lost 
her sense of reality and created her own, but she believes those circumstances. So when you see her, as you say, talking about stabbing the guy, when you see her being interviewed, there's no, there's no hint of calculate. There's no hint of a calculated thing going on. And she's, she's, she's emotional about it. So it's extraordinarily believable and, Perhaps that's that is her reality, which then questions, well, do you do you empathize with her in the end, knowing that she was a victim, victim herself as a child? Well, there's a lot you've uh, there's a lot of unpacking to do here, <laughs> Cub. Um this is her explanation at the end of the film, the journalist who springs the final twist of the story about her true father being a resistance fighter who buckles under torture by the Nazis and gives gives away the names of all the resistance fighters in Belgium, so becomes a traitor. Um, The journalist that sprung that story gets a letter from Misha, and that's exactly her argument, that... It's not a true story, but it was her reality and her way of kind of building a bubble around herself in order to survive. And as you say, as she embellished and embellished the story, so she comes to believe it herself. And as you say, because she believes it herself, we believe it. And then there's this debate at the end of the film between various characters, some saying, yeah, you know, this was her way of of protecting herself, and others saying this was sheer greed, this was a money-making venture that was bought into by, by the publisher. And I think the person, the interesting one, is the person they give the final word to, which is the little old lady, Evelyn or Evelyn, who is was a hidden child in the war, a hidden Jewish child taken in by a Catholic family and and hidden. Um, her, and, and she's the one that finally discovers the, the story and breaks, breaks the, the story. She basically says at the end of the film, I've got, I've got mixed feelings about Misha, you know. She was both a victim and a villain. And I thought that was, um, that just about really summed it up because it's complicated, you know, it's complex. I don't think it was, I don't think it was a kind of deliberate hoax exploited by a greedy publisher. I think it was one of those situations like a snowball rolling down the mountain that gradually gets more and more becomes bigger and bigger and rolls faster and faster until it sort of crashes at the bottom and all is revealed. Um, interestingly, that little old lady I, I, I read in the same interview with the director died soon after the making of the film or the, and before the film was finished. I think she's a great character. I really liked her you know, digging into the archives and ferreting away, um, determined to sort of find the truth, whatever the truth is. 
But I think you think about do we need to like characters in a film in order to go along with the film or enjoy it? You know, that's another good question. I mean, I, I've, I remember particularly the film about Woomera I made where which was there were, you know, lots of characters in that film. And I remember the ABC commissioning editor looking at a rough cut and saying, oh, drop that guy, I don't like him. And yet his contribution to the story of the history of Woomera I thought was, you know, very um, well, very important to the film. And so, you know, I, I kind of fought that argument and we kept him in the film and whether people liked him or not, I don't know. I'd, I'm not so sure it's about liking people. It, I guess it's about identifying with them. And the publisher too is a little bit difficult to identify with because I don't know, she's got this kind of harassed look about her <laughs> from the very beginning. And, the, and and you kind of think, well, there's a lot going on behind behind that face. And it, it's, it's difficult to identify with Misha precisely because she is an actor. And so at what stage did you begin to tweak that, you know, and this is the interesting thing for me in terms of the the film itself, that the film also is a hoax because the person you think is Misha talking to camera and the first question the director asks her is, please tell me, you know, the story of your life and Misha embarks on that story. Uh, we think she is Misha. She's a fantastic lookalike because later in the film we see, we see real archival footage of the real Misha and it was quite a while for me till the penny dropped. When did it drop for you? I mean, there's a moment in the film where they make it drop. Just firstly, back on the I identify thing. That's a much that's a, a much better word because I realised I don't like this. I liked it or I didn't like it. With these films, it's not did you like it. I think it's more did you did you identify with it, and. Yeah, I was. I guess I was struggling to identify with her early on. But in answer to your question of, of the film being a bit of a hoax in itself, I, I didn't tweak to that so early on. But as I say, I I started to question her story, and then it wasn't a surprise when it was revealed that she was an actress because something wasn't sitting right. But I couldn't put my finger on it. But it wasn't. It wasn't so early on, no. Yeah. So the moment in the film when you ha- when you have to realise this, if you haven't realised it before, is when they start to dismantle the set. Yeah. The domestic, you know, set that they've built to sit her down and do the interview. And, oh, you see her going to get her makeup done and, and they she gets her wig off and then you go, oh, yeah, I knew there was, I thought there was something fishy about all this. <laughs> yeah, you tweak. Um, and you you tweak. And at the end of the film, it's revealed that Misha declined to be interviewed for the film. For me, Misha isn't really the central character of the film. Uh, if I had to pick a central character, 
you know, I'd pick the publisher or Evelyn, the, you know, the actual hidden. I mean, there there are other people, as I said, the lawyers, the journalists, the radio host who was duped, you know, all those people are, uh, appear in the film and tell their part of the story. And they all acknowledged that they believed this woman 100%, you know. There's, there's not one of them that says, oh, from the start I thought it was a load of bullshit. And then, they, of course, they feel angry, they feel betrayed, they feel bitter, you know, that they've had the wall pulled over their eyes. And, again, I think particularly in this age of misinformation and fake news and, you know, anti-vaxxing and all the rest of it, this kind of question of how people emerge who can convince us that their story is true when it's not is an interesting kind of phenomenon. And really, you talk about Misha believing her own story. She believes, seems to believe it to such an extent because it just happens by coincidence that there's a wolf park in this town where Michelle and the publisher and where they live. And the wolf expert is one of the characters in the film. And they, because of her story about living with the wolves, they introduce her to the wolves in the park and she gets on great with them to such an extent that Opera Winfrey, you know, is uh, sends her crew to film Misha in the wolf compound and there's this amazing story of this relationship with the wolf and when Misha howls all the wolves in the compound start howling now you wouldn't get me walking into a wolf's compound a compound full of huge wolves I mean these are real wolves you know they're not foxes um, and yet Misha was able to do that. You know, she was able to play this part or be this person to such an extent where she could even, you know, risk her neck by by sticking her head in a wolf's mouth. <laughs> and that was like an affirmation that, okay, it was like she had and she howled. She howled as well and they howled back. So that yeah. it was like to the broader community, that was an affirmation that this was this was real. But that's the thing. She just delivered everything so straight-faced. I was kind of watching for the eyes to dart when she's the real Misha's being interviewed. You know, if she's being strategic and calculating, you'd think, you know, that the, the body does things when, when people lie, you know, there's human behavior around that, but she was just straight faced and you see the people interviewing her, just taking it back. Again, it goes back to how could you question somebody who's saying they killed someone who attempted to rape them, that they were a Holocaust. You just, if you, if you were going to question that, you'd feel pretty bad yourself. You'd feel despicable if someone tried to, so you just going back to your, you know, how do we decipher truth in this current age? It's also like, well, there's just things that morally you wouldn't question. And if people use that as, 
as cannon fodder, well, you know, that's powerful. The real Misha was more convincing than the actress. You know, I mean, the actress actress was doing her best, but I think the real Misha was more convincing. When I shifted to the real Misha and then realised that she had her own survival mechanisms going on, that's when it got interesting for me. Yeah. But then, you know, you get the warning from the Holocaust expert that um, this, this, you know, this isn't, there is no defence, there is no redemptive kind of explanation. This story is a lie and it must be kind of exposed as a lie and the reason it needs to be exposed as a lie is because you don't want to give ammunition to kind of anti-Holocaust, to Holocaust deniers you know, if they think people are getting away with these kind of fake stories, then they can begin to generalise and say, well, you know, all Holocaust survivors are not telling the entire truth. They're all embellishing them. Before you know it, there was no Holocaust at all. And Sam Hopkinson talks about being aware of that when he was making the film, that he didn't want to fuel the fire for uh, Holocaust deniers, and so you're left. You're left with a choice. The um, the one I quite liked was the the Belgian school teacher who, oh, I don't know if this is a personality disorder, but her conclusion was that Misha suffered from mythomania. <laughs> now, I'm not I'm not sure where she got that term or whether you can look it up in the psychologist's handbook. But mythomania, it was a kind of mania, really, and it was a myth. So, yeah, there's that um, little scene at the end of Archive in the real Misha's kitchen, and she's got all those pictures of wolves all over the wall, and she says, obviously, this is after she's been exposed or her story's been exposed. She says, although, you know, people now know that my story isn't true, I've still got my wolves, you know. And the purpose of the wolves in the story is that they protect her. They protect her from humans. And that, for me, is a link to her childhood being abused, being called the traitor's daughter, you know, and not not being able to feel secure or trust people because they would abuse her. And the wolves are like a metaphorical shield for her, which has become a, a real shield. And she's got these pictures all over the all over the walls. That's the thing. It does make sense. Her world. But that's no reason to to con people. Whether whether she did that intentionally or not remains to be to be seen. Yeah, there's. I think uh, I think it's her auntie um, is found in Brussels once they get the name sorted out, and she says, "Oh, you know, Misha was Misha always was." Um, fantasizing and making up stories 
from from a very young child, like even before the business about the 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 daughter, the traitor's daughter. Is that compulsive lying, or is that just myth mania or making up? Story? Well, uh, who knows? I mean, I don't know what a psychiatrist's analysis of Misha would be. I guess so. I guess that is different to just lying on a daily basis when you're actually inventing the world, your own world. <laughs> yeah. Well, as you say, I don't think she was lying on a daily basis. She believed her own, for what for whatever reason, she kind of believed her own story. Or else you have to say, well, it was a hoax and she was looking to make a lot of money. And I don't think it was, I don't think it was that simple. Um, oh, just the other thing is that, this, you know, this is a Netflix doco and it's a classic Netflix doco. It's got incredibly high production values. You know, they build this incredibly intricate, convincing set. They shoot all over the world. The camera work is... You know, it, it, it's a co-production between Arte in France and the BBC and a whole lot of other broadcasters. The music is dramatic. It's told like true crime. You know, you've got that structure of the investigative film, which is why they they needed a Misha in there. If they hadn't had a Misha from the start, you know, they needed the actress in order to get that sense of the story and the way the story unfolds. So, you know, it, it's a big budget, classic Netflix kind of approach to documentary. And I, I think it works very well, personally. It's very seductive. For some reason, I question the need for like the set to be built. Like, if they wanted her in an apartment, I'm always thinking, like, why didn't they just put her in an apartment? Why did they need to build a, an entire fake set? But thinking back to Dick Johnson is dead. In that case, when Kirsten Johnson had all this money, she built the. She really they built these amazing sets that were really pivotal and such a cool part of that documentary. But in this case, I was like, is there the need for for the fake set? Well, the ultimate need for the fake set is in the is so that we see its deconstruction two thirds or three quarters of the way. There, there was the a film. lot of that visually actually taking it apart, putting yeah, it away. They're and- taking the set apart and they're packing it away and the grip and the gaffer, you know, cleaning up. And that's a kind of metaphor for Misha's story starting to be deconstructed or falling apart, you know, whatever way, whatever way you see it. And and that's that that's the kind of humor, if you like, of the director's approach that he's convinced us or hopes he's convinced us that this is Misha and that her story is true. And then as the story begins to crumble, so does the filmic process is taken apart and we see it in front of our our own eyes. So that deconstruction of the set is a kind of key device, I think, which reveals the artifice of the film.
although it's a documentary. We're not, we're not told at the beginning this is a recreation of an interview with Misha. We are left to think this is Misha. Um, and his, uh, Sam Hopkinson's justification for this is, well, it's fine to kind of pull the wool over the viewer's eyes when there's a genuine purpose to do so, as long as it, by the end of the film the viewer has all the information they need, you know, to make a judgment about the story, then, you know, ethically you've kind of done your job. If you dupe the audience or allow them to dupe themselves because our vision isn't sharp enough to spot that this is a set and that Mish is not the Mish we're seeing in photographs and footage, um, that's okay as far as the filmmaker goes, as long as all is revealed at the end, uh, as it is revealed. But, you know, this, this it's also a genre. Um, you know, in Australia we had the Helen Demidenko affair. Um, Helen Demidenko wrote a book which claimed to be based on her family history and that her father was a working-class Ukrainian, and it was all about, you know, Holocaust-type material, and then it turns out she's the daughter of a working-class couple in England. Um, and that was discovered by some journalist. Well, perhaps audiences like to be able to do a bit of the brain power to figure stuff out, and then uh, obviously an audience doesn't want to feel necessarily feel duped by the the film but it's perhaps important to give the audience a trust to to piece piece this together and that an audience enjoys trying to piece this we are we are detectives in our own in our own way yeah well i guess that's the attraction of true crime which is all the rage these days and if we really wanted people to listen to our little podcast, we'd be doing true crime <laughs> investigations, you know. <laughs> but Germany's, Germany's the, the ultimate crimi. Oh gosh, there's such an obsession here with with crime shows. It's insane. It's insane. Yeah. And I, I've never been able to figure it out. But, yeah, that that's that's the, the niche, the market right there. But just... Well, have, have you come across the Only Murder in the Building series yet? No. We're watching it at the moment. It's got Steve Martin in. Oh, legend. Um, yeah, a couple, it's got a couple of Martin short. They're, they're legends. But they, they live, and there's three of them. There's a young woman as well whose name escapes me. Uh, they live in an apartment block in New York, and there's a murder, and they're all true crime fans listen they listen to true crime podcasts so the three of them get together and decide to solve this crime and make a podcast <laughs> as they go <laughs> so yeah it's it's buying into this podcast true crime genre where the amateurs are kind of picking it up now and making podcasts just like you and i <laughs> As everyone's, <laughs> uh, everyone's got a podcast these days, but ju- just to bring it home, bring it home a bit heavy, but the Holocaust, you know, I was educated about it in school, but obviously my education was more around Australian history. Uh, 
now that I live in Germany, I, as an Australian living here, am reminded of the Holocaust daily. So here in Hamburg, out the front of apartments, they have gold plates on the footpath, so small gold plates um, set in the footpath out of the front of apartments and on those gold plates are the names and date of birth deaths of people who had to flee those apartments or people who was deported to concentration camps so when you're riding your bike i take note every time i see these gold plates and you see that there was a house with five people and then you see two names and it's, it's everywhere. So some, sometimes you go into an area and there's more plates than other areas and just these gold plates on the foot, footpath, they're literally where you, where you walk every day. This is something that has come into my conscious and obviously an awareness and, and speaking to people here about the dark and heavy history and how, how Germany rebuilt after that time is ever present for me. Yeah. And so it's not a forbidden topic. No. Intermission. If you need to nip to the bathroom, restock the popcorn, or move seats because the bloke next to you is obnoxious, now's the time to do it. A quick word from our sponsor. Ah, we don't have one, but we're hoping to get one. Let's get into our second film in this double feature. If our audience of two hear the rustling of paper, that's because I've got six pages of notes. <laughs> six pages. Wow. Something like that. All right, guys, part two of our show today, we're looking at stories we tell, and Wolfski's going to do the honour of the introduction. Well, he's going to do the honour of the introduction if you can find the right place in his <laughs> notes. Um. Uh, yeah, no, I was just looking up the year. 2012, Sarah Polly's film uh, Stories We Tell, which is was actually her first documentary. Sarah Polly had a history in drama and making narrative films. Um, but this is a documentary about her own family. And, um, yeah, it's a bit... Um, it's a bit difficult to know where to start, but her mum has passed away and there have been jokes going around the family. There are, I think, five siblings altogether um, that Sarah, Sarah, that the father, Michael, of the family isn't Sarah's father. Um, there seems to be some kind of joke because she had red hair. Um, people would say, oh, you're not, you know, your parents aren't these parents or your dad's not this dad. And so the film becomes a kind of search for the truth about this event since her mum has died of cancer. But... Um, more than that, it, it's it's an examination of the kind of documentary making process, 
because she ha- Sarah Sarah Polly has a particular approach which we can discuss to finding the truth, and the question is whether whether that's an effective method and whether the documentary whether a documentary about memory and the varying memories that different people have at the same events, whether there is such a thing as the truth uh, becomes a matter of debate in the film. Um, Promoted by various devices, including, well, what one one might call reenactment, but using actors in kind of faux archive footage, and in the in the process, although it's not really the process of making the film, because I think it's all happened before she starts to make the film, but because she recreates key moments in that process, you kind of get the feeling that it's unfolding before your eyes. She finds out the truth about her father. Her approach essentially is to lay it on the table with the whole family to bring everybody's perspective in as opposed to giving one person's point of view. So she lays it out to all the players in the story to give their interpretation, perception, memories of this woman Diane's life. That was her approach essentially, but interweaved with these reenactments and I didn't mind how direct she was with a question. So she said to a couple of the family members, what do you think of me making this film? And I thought it was pretty cool that she just threw that out there. I thought that was brave of her to just lay that on the, on the line and bring everybody in. Yeah. Well, it's not just the family. Well, there's like three circles. There's, there's those immediately affected, like, you know, who are the core of the story. Then there's the family with the siblings and her her father or the father of the family. And then beyond that, there are friends of Diane's, relatives of various kinds. So the circle kind of widens. And it's interesting that um, she gives, you know, equal weight to everybody's opinions, really, and very rarely kind of gives her own. In fact, there's a couple of times where I think her brother says, well, you tell me, you know, what what do you think happened? You know, I can trust your memory better than mine. But she never really answers. She's there to kind of hear the way her family and the people involved with her recall things and one of the interesting things is the different ways they recall things not so much in the macro events but in the details you know they're constantly the siblings are constantly disagreeing about well was the funeral a good event or was it just a whole lot of show business people that turned up and performed um you know, was their mother, was Diane a happy person? Well, some say, one sibling says, yeah, she was excited by life. And another sibling says she was always in complete disarray about everything. So you've got these same 
the same, you know, the people involved, and they all remember things slightly differently. So massive spoilers again, but Harry, who is the biological father, who turns out to be the biological father, he argues against this model. So when she asks him about the filmmaking approach, he argues against having this, all these, the, the direct circle, the outer one. He's, I think he basically says it dilutes, it dilutes the, the truth. The, the two things he said that, that resonated with me were that you can give people the exact same set of circumstances and it will affect people completely differently, which is clearly the case here. And also that the critical function of art is to get to truth. And interestingly enough, he was a a well-known producer so he's coming from a whole lot of experience in that sense as well. But he's also got a big investment in the revelation that he is Sarah's father and that she was the result of an affair that Diane had with him when she left Toronto to go to Montreal and appear in a, in a play. Um and his position is, you know, really there are only two people who can authoritative, authoritatively tell this story and one of them is dead. So I'm really the only one who can tell the true story. And he and Sarah in the latter part of the film, it's like an ongoing debate about, well, is, is Harry right or is Sarah right, you know? And her approach is, it's laid out at the beginning of the film as a kind of, um, one person describes it as a a medley approach, you know, a a combination of tunes, each tune sung by a different member of the family, but it all joins together um, to form some ultimate, I'm using this metaphor. They don't use it. They they use the term melody. But, you know, the different components of the melody make a song which is, if you like, the truth. It's an ensemble as opposed to a to an individual account. Very well put. Very <laughs> well put. To bring Diane and her story to life without her without her being able to give her own account of it. Yeah. So I think I think the difficulty for Harry is that he sees himself as the main, well, he and Sarah being the offspring of this affair, he sees he and Sarah as kind of the main characters in this story. And really I think not only does Sarah not, see him as the main character but he isn't the main character I mean and there's a sense in which she is the main character as the filmmaker but I think there's a through line character who is the main character who who would you kind of I, I must admit I was quite confused piecing to get at first like who's who and how, how many siblings are there and and you've got to watch this film uh, twice. You do. And it was quite long as well. And, it, yeah. and 
and it, it did take me a while, but a, th- a through line through is, is the, um, is Michael. Yeah. Yeah. Michael, her ostensibly father, the father of the family. Yes. Who turns out not to be her father. Um, yeah, because he kicks the film off these, this whole, he's an interesting character. He interests me because he's obviously, I mean, they live in Canada. Um, but he's obviously from the north of England originally. He's still got a bit of an accent and he's one of those, you know, and he still smokes cigarettes. He's constantly lighting them up. And he's one of those guys that sort of tends to turn everything into a joke, um, probably as a kind of protective mechanism. But this revelation that he's not Sarah's biological father shakes him out of his sort of post-widowhood stupor and he writes this whole account of his life with Diane and the family and the film opens with Sarah taking him into a studio, sits him down and he says, well, okay, what are we going to do? And she puts, you know, this virtual book in front of him and says, you're going to read the story that you wrote. And he says, what, all of it? And she says, yeah, from start to finish. And throughout the film, we keep coming back to him reading the story that he's written as a result of all these events. And, in fact, he gets the last word in the film as well. Interestingly, he describes Sarah as a kind of brutal director because she asks him some pretty difficult questions questions you know um and and that's interesting for me too because I'm, I'm not sure brutal is the right word but she is quietly persistent in her questioning of everybody in the film and for me i think that's the hallmark of a good documentary maker is not not someone who's rude or upsets people but quietly goes about their business in a kind of persevering and persistent way and isn't afraid to kind of ask the hard questions. It's really nice in a way because he's gone full circle because Diane had always encouraged him to write and he'd never done anything with it. But in this time he's written this this account and, yeah, he was once an actor and there's classic footage of him being directed by Sarah in former times, but he's like, well, now you've, now you've actually broken me down. Uh, So the dynamic between them is pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. And his his writing's pretty interesting and he's constantly kind of referring to that the comedy of tragedy always breaks through, you know, um, which is his way of dealing with things. I, I was confused when I, I cottoned on that it was a, and this has parallels to, to Bisha and the wolves, this reenactment stuff using the actors to, and I caught, I cottoned onto that pretty early the scenes in the bar. As soon as they were shown, I was like, this is, but this is clearly, I, but I found it hard to decipher. Then I was like, what's, what's archival and what's being reenacted. And that was a bit 
mind boggling as well as who are all these, these different people, but it did, it did make sense. But yeah, I'm still, I still couldn't tell you what was, I, I definitely the bar, the bar scenes with the actors who were hanging out after a play where she had met the affair. That was pretty clear. That was, that was reenactment, but obviously the archival footage of, of Diane, um, I'm not, there's some, blur, there's some blurry lines there. There's very blurry lines and you have to refer to the credits to find the truth, which is that, you know, she's got cast Diane Polly so-and-so, Michael Polly so-and-so, all her brothers and sisters. She had people playing their parts. So, and, you know, I've watched this film probably three times now in various circumstances, and I'm beginning to kind of be able to divide up. There is a lot of family movie footage, and there's also a lot of Super 8 recreated stroke family footage. And I think the interesting thing is that, you see, this is another way of saying this is a film about the complexity and vagaries of memory. You know, what is real archive? What is not? If you freeze frame, you'd eventually be able to figure out, you know, who the actors are and who who's, who aren't actors. But it's all a mishmash. The archive is a mishmash of Super 8-looking archive footage. And the fact that you can't and you're not told the difference is making a point, and the point is what's true, what isn't, you know, what, whose memory is the right memory. If we go back to Amy, one of our former, former episodes, the archival footage was so rich and so pure. There was not a reenactment in sight. It was carried by the richness of archival footage in its own right. Whereas in this film, as you say, it's intentional, but it's a mix. It's interesting to see the the two sides. Well, there's lots of layers in this film. There's the the interviews, which are you know straight filmed properly, you know type interviews. Then there's the archive, which of which there's more than one layer. There's the real archive, if you like, and the imagined archive and then the kind of layer below all that is um, the way the film constantly refers to the filmmaking process you see the siblings sitting down and going how do I look you know what's my frame Um, you've got Michael in the studio being filmed and and you see Sarah Polly watching him, and often she says to him, "Would you reread that sentence?" Whereas you know, normally when you'd edit a film, you you would select the best take, but she leaves that in. You know, he's read the sentence, we've heard it, and she says to him, "Could you read that again?" And he says, "Oh, I thought I got it right the first time," <laughs> you know. But he reads it again. So there's this constant reference to the filmmaking process, which is another kind of layer 
of the film. But getting to the to the the core of it, which is who is who was this woman, Diane? Who who was she, and what what was going on for her? You know, it's it's a film about a number of things: infidelity, be, being one, <laughs> and from what was what was presented by the ensemble, I I empathised with Diane when I realised that she was carrying a couple of huge burdens. You know, the first the first burden was that she lost cuss. She had an earlier earlier marriage early on in the piece. She was unfaithful in that marriage and lost custody of the children. It was one of the first sort of cases in that period where custody had been handed over to the father and the woman was shamed. So she was carrying that. And then on top of that, she'd had a child to someone else. And the, the father figure essentially believed Sarah to be his. And so she was carrying, she was carrying these massive burdens and the, and the children touch on that, that that must've been a, a horrendous thing to, to carry her around and not to bring it back to me, but I can relate to that feeling having been away from my child for a period of time when he was very young, it was life was okay in terms of, you know, I had a good way of life, but everything I did every, every time I tried to get on with, with life, this was pulling at me um, that I was away from him. So the fact that this woman, you know, and, and it seemed from her behaviour from this account and from all the footage, it seemed that her behaviour was perhaps one of escapism in a way to, to not deal with these secrets. Well, that, that's interesting because I guess the figure I related to most was Michael in a way and I found him remarkably accepting of what had happened. In fact, and, you know, I don't think he's bullshitting. He, he says in this piece that he's written, you know, had Diane told me that, you know, she'd had this affair and and that Sarah was the result of it, I, I would have accepted it, he said. And, I mean, he, he's constantly saying how he thought he was not a very good husband and, you know, he wasn't at all surprised that she went off kind of elsewhere and one of the siblings I think says it's very moving she says you know I'm really glad that that mum did find love it's just that she could you know she found it in the wrong guy you know it would have been better if she could have found it in Michael um and he's very He's very magnanimous about the whole thing and says, you know, because people are trying to protect him, um, Harry writes a book based on the story and he wants to publish the book and Sarah gets very upset about that and says, look, I haven't even told my dad at home yet that you're my real father. You know, they've done the DNA test and all of that. She's, she's saying, I haven't even told him about the DNA test yet. There's no way you can publish this book. You know, his privacy is crucial. And then she does get around to telling him. 
And he says, look, you know, it's not me that people should feel sorry for. It's Harry because Harry didn't get to raise you. You know, I got to raise you and where you have a wonderful relationship. And that kind of reminded me a little bit, you know, of my own family adoption story where um, in talking to Karen, she in a way was more, well, you know, understandably more engaged and more protective of her adopted parents than of Val when she found that Val was her biological parent. And I think Michael realises this in the film and says, you know, it's Harry you should feel sorry for because Harry didn't get to raise you and get to know you the way that that I did. And if your mum hadn't had the affair she had, you wouldn't be the person you are, you know. In fact, you wouldn't be a person at all. So I just found him to be so kind of flexible and understanding that I quite ended up admiring him repressed old bloke that he was in he some didn't, way. He didn't have um he didn't seem to have a bitterness or a resentment no. or a, or no. anything no. like that. No. I mean he clearly had suffered and I don't know if you picked up I thought you probably would you know he talks uh, he's in his office writing or something and he talks about how he likes to have a fly on the window <laughs> and um alone isolation yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah. and there see there those two crucial moments the moment where sarah meets harry for the first time and the moment when she tells michael the truth about who her father is are both recreated that's what I was confused about. <laughs> yep. They're both using actors who look alike, reasonable look alike, not as good as Misha, I have to say. I mean, there is there is archive footage with Michael and Diane and there is archival footage with Harry, but those two crucial meetings, obviously when she first met Harry in this cafe, she wouldn't have filmed it. She didn't no. film it. No, and they lip sync. They lip sync and stuff. Yeah, they lip sync little bits of it, you know, in a kind of playful way. And the same when she sits down to tell Michael the truth, you know, it's it's not ethical to tell him the truth for the first time while you're filming him. So, and at that stage, I don't think making a documentary had even sort of occurred to her. And that's one thing that interests me. And I'd like to read a little quote from oh, I Sarah. I like a quote, yeah. Well, you know, she sets out to make this doco and people are saying, you know, what is it? I mean, Michael asks her in the opening scene, you know, what is this documentary? And she says, well, I, it's an investigation, you know, but that's as much as she can kind of say. And at the end of the film, she's still trying to make up her mind and she says, um, because it, it, Michael says to her, do you think you're making this film to kind of avoid the issues, to sort of cover up the impact that this revelation has had on you? You know, it's a bit of a distraction. 
And she writes back to him and says, well, maybe there is something underneath my need to make this film that I've been denying. Every time I feel I have my footing, I lose it. I can't figure out why I'm exposing myself in this way. It's really embarrassing, to be honest. Have I totally lost my mind trying to reconstruct the past from other people's words, trying to form her, Diane? Is this the tsunami she unleashed when she left us and all of us still flailing in her wake, trying to pull it together in the wreckage and her slipping away from us over and over again just as we begin to see her face? I think that's beautiful and, you know, that's right at the end of the film. So... There's no kind of sense of resolution as to, and, and uh, you know, she's talking to Harry about, do you mind me making this film? I've got no idea what it's going to turn into. Maybe I'll finish it. Maybe I won't. You know, maybe it'll become a documentary. Maybe it'll just sit in a drawer. And you get that constant feeling throughout the film that she's, you know, trying to find her way in the dark. Um And out of that comes this, for me, it's a gem of a documentary. You know, this is in my top 10 with the English surgeon, really. But I I think it is a film that you need to watch. I I know it's an hour and 45 minutes, but it's so kind of dense in a way. Every moment is, is, you know, not, there is no moment that is wasted, and uh, it's almost a film you need to watch again to kind of begin to soak it up. Do you think it broke some conventional rules in the way it was made? Is it Was this in breaking new ground? I think, yep. I think in itself referential, reflexive role, way that it unfolds and we see the filmmaking, you know, it, it lays bare the filmmaking process was certainly, I mean, it was a film I looked at when I was thinking about freedom stories and about how you can be more transparent in your filmmaking so that the audience kind of understand where you as the filmmaker are coming from. And it was at that point that I decided, well, you know, if the mic's in shot, I don't care. If I have to explain to somebody what I'm trying to do, I'll do my best and kind of keep it in the film. If it helps the audience understand what, what you're tussling with, why why not? An audience kind of can't really understand a film unless they know where the filmmaker's coming from. You know, and this kind of pretense that there is no filmmaker, that, you know, this is a fly on the wall observing what's going on is, you know absolute crap there's always a filmmaker and they're always being selective about what they film and what they leave in and what they leave out um and i think generally we only find out what makes the filmmaker tick when um they do a q and a at a festival i think that that's one of the interesting things about free solo is you learn about the filmmakers as well as about the subject. This is obviously in a, in a documentary sense. It's interesting to look at it in a narrative sense as well when the filmmaker is 
hidden in a way, but obviously not stylistically and through, through the story, but yeah, two very different, different approaches with narrative when the filmmaking is hidden in a way. Yeah. Well, there's this idea that you need to hide the paraphernalia of the filming in order to get the audience to suspend their disbelief or engage with the film. So you're not pulled out of it. Yeah. But that kind of idea is, you know, it's defunct really in, in the kind of modern world in which we live, in which everyone is aware of filmmaking and everybody's making their own films about, you know, this I, and that. I get, I don't know why it sprung to mind, but it goes back to like, just thinking in a narrative sense, it goes back to like Blair Witch Project. You, you know, you may, it was basically the first, it was a horror film in a forest that was just shot on a, on a, someone's home video camera. And it had such a, it had such a rawness and a realness to it back a while ago that that made it all the more confronting. So it was shot for nothing on a normal camera in a forest. And um, I'm just saying that the filmmaking part to that was exposed in a way, but it actually captured people in that sense. But there are, you know, there are other things in in stories we tell, which in other films would seem cliched. I mean, you're probably first time watching it, don't remember, but there's a sequence towards the end of the film where we just see each person who's been interviewed. I remember. Yeah, their silent reactions. Yeah. Yeah, they're just silently kind of looking at the camera or past the camera and there's a song going in the background and each person is given, you know, 15 seconds or something of just reflective kind of as as if they're reflecting on the story. And that's done in a lot of films where you get shots of just people kind of looking at the camera, but somehow in other films it feels cliched. But in this film it doesn't feel cliched. No, it didn't. No. And it's interesting that, in the credits, rather than putting, you know, family and then the names, she puts storytellers and then their names. So each of them is treated as a storyteller. There was there was a couple of those reflective shots in Misha as well. <laughs> not not for as long, but there you know, was. The, the the pensive yeah thought but i also found it interesting just when sarah was directing michael reading the script watching her listen to him reading was interesting as well i guess i'm t- toying with what the difference between perspective and memory is a little bit it got me thinking about like you know you have a point of view you have a perspective i guess but that's your perspective is shaped by your your memories um, it's sort of, I don't know what my question is, but sort of like how much of it is about people's perspective and how much of it is it just about the literal memory of things that happened or person? Well, I, I suppose the question is why do, why do different people who've been through the same event remember it differently? Because we're all just so individual, different and 
we just take things in differently and respond to things so differently that no one could ever have the same perception or memory of a of an event if you if you were ill on on the day you know if there was a big family event and you were ill on that day and someone else wasn't you're going to have two completely different experiences yeah but often i think it's that well partly personality but partly our memories are shaped by experiences we had as kids I guess which leads us to sort of see the world in particular ways you know we've all been marked by our childhood experiences <laughs> which in some it gives us empathy you know one of the exercises we do with students is we get them to think about one or two you know very important moments in their lives and then we get to think get them to think about who do you empathize with in the world and then they realize there's a connection you know mm. that when they were kids they were left in you know left alone for hours on end and as they grow up they have empathy with homeless people or lonely people or you know. That's each, that goes back to do you identify? Yeah. We, we ourselves have had a different response because I identified with Diane for these, these burdens that she was carrying and you identified with Michael because of your own. So that just shows in itself us as viewers have our own, our own lens. Yeah, exactly. And in, in a way, you know, the way that Sarah Polly makes the film, we've got lots of choices about who we identify with. If she'd gone the Harry route, we'd either have identified with Harry or we wouldn't, you know, it's like, because he reckoned he was the owner of the story and that bringing other people in, as you said, just clouds the issue. And But Sarah takes this opposite approach and... I think in a way she makes room for us as an audience to make up our own minds and believe who we want to believe and identify with who we want to identify with. Again, it was very bold. It was very bold that she just said, what do you think of this film being made? Cause I, I don't know if I haven't seen that sort of asked. It's just, let's get to the questions and let's get into it. Not, Hold on a second. What are you thinking? What's this crazy person doing here with a camera? You know, there's like an unspoken. If you just get that on the table. And the truth is that as filmmakers, we're often not sure what we're doing. You know, we, we think we're making one kind of film and we end up making another, you know, like I, th I thought that I was making the film by my own family about an adoption story, but really. I was making a film about the fact that family is not got a great deal to do with biology, really, you know, and, and this is true of stories we tell. It seemed to me that the film is really a film about her and Michael and the way they get through this together and the way that, in a way, their relationship becomes stronger as a result. Um and I'm not sure where 
Harry kind of ends up, you know, he doesn't, he decides not to publish his book because of Sarah's concerns. But then it's kind of Michael's book that does get published because he gets to read it, you know, on air as part of the documentary. Just because we're biologically related doesn't mean certain family members have the deepest or closest relationships with one another purely because of biology. Um, it's bigger than that. It's it's time and what moments you were involved in together. And It's much more complicated than just DNA and biology. But it's good. It's interesting to know that this is up there for you. It, I didn't realize that it was highly regarded to you from a from a filmmaking perspective. And I and I, I was interested into oh, this does seem like it's broken some conventional ways. And you know, it's not the only film that's done that, but it was certainly an influence on me in terms of my filmmaking and thinking about you know, transparency and ethics and honesty. and. So but I may, I may have to give it another viewing just to get some clarity on all the moving, all the moving parts. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, <laughs> there is, <laughs> there's a lot of moving parts in a way. Mishes and the wolves is a bit easier to deal with because in the classic thriller structure, you know, they impart each piece of information one at a time and, when you've realised, okay, she's fudged the surname, then you get the next piece of discovery and it's all kind of released one at a time. But in stories we tell, there's all these layers that are working, you know, I was going to say in harmony, not always in harmony. And it's one of those films, like every time I watch it, I get more from it. And I'm not sure that would be the case with with Misha and the Wolves because of the artifice and that both films are kind of self-referential in a way. Both, you know, deconstruct themselves in various ways. They're an interesting sort of pair of films to put side by side and they are very different. I mean, I'm not saying the production values in stories we tell aren't high because they are but it's not a blockbuster kind of doco like the Netflix approach with Mission and the Wolves. It's a kind of blockbuster doco. You wouldn't call stories we tell a blockbuster doco, but it's, it's the one I would take to the desert island. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have a film you would like to recommend for us to review or you have any filmmaker questions, please email lionfuryproductions at gmail.com. Please join us on the next episode when we change it up a little and look at the body of work of one filmmaker, the Iranian director Jafar Panahi.